Hi everyone, this is Life of Gems, Season 2, Episode 15, and I am here with the amazing, the epic, the memorable, memoirist, <laughs> Dr. Mary Hero Wagner, author of The Memoir, Girls in the Hood, a memoir of Mama in South Los Angeles. I'm going to read her bio and then I'm going to bring her in. Welcome, Mary. Dr. Mary Hill Bogner is a professor, former newspaper journalist, and author of the memoir, Girls in the Hood, a memoir of Mama in South Los Angeles, which was released in 2021 by Pact Press. After graduating, and you can read the book to find this out, as valedictorian of Compton High School, she attended USC, the University of Southern California, where she received a degree in print journalism. She later received an MA in mass communication from Ohio University in Columbus, that's Ohio State, and she earned a PhD in mass communication from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She has taught journalism at Shaw University, Humboldt, USC, North Carolina Central University, Ohio State University, Iowa State University, amongst others. Her journalism career included stints as a reporter at the Simi Valley Enterprise, which she wants us to know is now defunct, the Anaheim Bulletin, which is also defunct. This is showing where print is going. The Las Vegas Sun, which is kind of on the ropes, according to Mary, and the Chicago Tribune, which all papers are losing circulation, and the Des Moines Register. The print news business was drying up, but Mary's thirst for writing was not. Through it all, she listened to the author, Toni Morrison, who said, if there's a book that you want to read but hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that's why we call this episode, Write Your Story. So Mary's going to talk about why she decided to write her book. But basically, in her words, she wanted to read about the women and girls that she grew up with in South Central L.A., women like her mother who were the backbone of urban communities, and nowhere did she see this reflected. She says she hears her mother's voice in her writing and has incorporated advice from great writers too, like Lorraine Hasbury, who encouraged write, work, hard at it, care about it today. She has traded the frenzy of her mother's house to the more traditional challenges of a husband, three dogs, and the writing life. And she lives right here in the IE in the Inland Empire. Welcome, Dr. Mary Hill Wagner. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It is so nice to see you virtually, at least. We met at my reading at the Ontario Library. Then I went to your amazing reading at the Ontario Library where you read your memoir, pieces of it. And I just, I love your voice. I love the characters. I love your style. I love your dialogue. I love the action. I love the scenes that you build and build and build throughout this book. So if you'd like to start out by reading so everyone can get here and listen to your voice, I would love that. Are you? Do you want to read something? Sure. I was going to read something from uh, the first uh, chapter of uh, Girls in the Hood. Great. A I'm going to put the camera on you. So, Okay. It's Girls in the Hood, a memoir of Mama in South Central Los Angeles. And I'm going to read to you uh, from the first chapter. Uh, it, it's called Mama Throws a Party. My mother was plotting murder at the kitchen table again. You shouldn't put up with that bullshit, Pat, my mother said. You just go get yourself a big boiling pot and wait for that son of a bitch to go to sleep. Put that pot on nice and long and pour in a little lie. Go in, shake the bed so he knows it's you, and dump that shit over his lying, wife-beaten, cheating-ass head. I stood in the kitchen on the red carnation milk crate. I tried to keep the dishes from clattering and clanging, but I just knew that my mother was going to glance over, notice my seven-year-old self, and yell something about getting out of grown folks' conversation. I knew that as soon as they started discussing Pat's husband, Gene, I was supposed to excuse myself and leave the room. It was risky to keep doing the dishes, but I wanted to hear what happened. Even though I was going doing the dishes as I was supposed to, I wouldn't have been surprised if she kicked the crate from under me and let my head hit the tile floor just to teach me a lesson about snooping. My mother didn't like kids getting all up in grown folks' conversation. Pat said, but I can't, I just can't. You know I love that man. And he say he real sorry. You is a simple ass bitch. 
my mother said to her best friend in the world. You gonna get enough of not listening to what I'm saying. I hope I don't have to go to your funeral or send that good-for-nothing man to his. Pat was a very tall woman who could reach anything on top of the refrigerator without getting up on her tiptoes. Now, she sat in the one of the flowered, padded dinette chairs that her long brown arms draped over the back. She could almost reach to the floor. Her wig seemed to be on sideways. Her apple-red lipstick was smeared and her eyes were bloodshot. My mother got up and went over to the refrigerator, reached in and got out a red popsicle. She handed it to her friend. Pat held it against the knot over her right eye. You know what I've been telling you? I told you and told you that that man was going to raise his hand to you one day. Remember? When you told me that he couldn't keep his Johnson in his pants and he was running around with every little hoe in that pagan-ass church you go to, I said, a man that will beat, cheat on his woman will beat on his woman. I know you remember when I said that shit. And I said back then that you should put a cap in his ass or leave him. I told you those was your choices. I thought about sending up a wish and crossing my fingers so they would be sure not to notice me. But it's hard to do dishes with crossed fingers. If my mother discovered that the dishes weren't, weren't done, in addition to the fact that I was snooping, well, I would get a wake-up whooping. Those were the worst kind because you couldn't even pretend to outrun the blows when you were asleep. Pat pushed her big body away from the table and scratched the chair loudly on the floor. She smoothed down her sundress that had giant daisies on it. The dress barely covered her bottom. She tried to set her wig to rights, but it still hung crooked. I gotta go get dinner on, say, she said, using her pet name for my mother. I'll call you later. Pat came over to me and handed me the popsicle. I took it, although I'm still pretending to be invisible. I set the popsicle on the counter and finished the dishes. My mother stood and accepted a hug from Pat. I climbed down from the crate awkwardly with the popsicle in my hand. I tried to tiptoe out of the kitchen past my mother. My mother grabbed the back of my collar. My mother stood over me like a large dog. But instead of whipping me, she just said, don't you tell nobody what we've been talking about up in here. You hear? We don't need to add gossip to your sins. You hear me, girl? Yes, ma'am, I mumbled. The next day, all was forgotten, as far as I could see. The whole house was in an uproar because Uncle Lowe was getting out of jail. I still don't know why it was made out to be such a big deal when he got out. Uncle Lowe seemed to be getting out of one jail or another. Uncle Lowe ducked in as he came through the front door. His real name was Lorenzo Gordon, senior, but everyone seemed to think it was really funny to call him Lowe. He was even taller than Pat. He could see to the top of the refrigerator all the way to the back. His head was shaved, so he was bald now. He'd grown a pencil mustache. It stood out in his karma cold lip. He, seemed, he said it made him look like Earl Flynn, whoever that was. Uncle Lowe was carrying his usual can of Schlitz malt liquor, a 16-ounce can because an 8-ounce can of anything was for guys with sugar in their shoes. His wife, Annette, who was almost as tall as our living room picture window and just about as wide, broke through the crowd of children and adults in the tiny living room and threw her arms around him. We called her Annie because ain't Annette was too hard to say. Uncle Lowe put his massive hand on Amy's butt. Annette, I got your present right here, Uncle Lowe said as he pushed Amy up against him. Y'all keep that smut for later. Boy, get your ass in here and say hello to your big sister, my mother said. Tank, how in the hell did I miss you standing over there? Uncle Lowe said, giving my mother a huge hug and a smooch on the cheek. I met a couple of guys in the joint. I might want to introduce you to. Boy. Don't nobody want your jailbird-ass friends, my mother said, and everybody laughed loudly. And somebody brought out a few cases of beer and bottles of I.W. Harper whiskey. The grown-ups started flowing into the back porch. The kids got plopped down in front of the TV. Gunsmoke was on. Only I went out after the adults. Girl, what the hell you think you're doing, my mother said. I ain't no fool. I just You just want to get up all up in grown folk conversation. I just want to see if anybody wants some ice or something, I said. 
My mother looked down at me and raised her hand, but just before any blow could be struck, Uncle O lifted me up onto his lap and hugged me against his wall-like chest. I could see my mother over his right shoulder. What's wrong with you, Tank? I don't want to hear no crying babies. Crying babies is sad. And I ain't had nothing but sad for six months, Uncle O told her and started to tickle me as he carried me onto the back porch. I laughed so much, I almost peed. Lo, you're going to spoil her, my mother said. Then she crossed the room and planted her bulk in a folding chair. She took out a pack of roll-your-own cigarettes, tapped some tobacco into the paper, and licked the cigarette shut. She lit it, shook the, match out, shook the match out, and dropped it on the stone floor. Throwing her left arm around her massive chest, she propped up her cigarette hand and puffed away. I sat on Uncle O's lap like I had done a hundred times before. I closed my eyes and sucking on two fingers, pretended to fall asleep. Where's my brother-in-law? Who is it this week, say? My Uncle Lo asked. My head bounced on his chest as he laughed. You know what, Lo? You can go fuck yourself, my mother said. You know that me and Big Willie's still together. Oh, yeah. He's the one I like. He didn't want to come to my homecoming? He just ain't here right now, my mother said. I told his sorry ass to spend a few days at his mama's house before I had to kill a motherfucker up in here. Why? What did you do to this one? Uncle O said. I didn't do nothing to him. That sorry ass man spent the rent money. And do you know what he spent it on? Wine, women, and song, Uncle O said. Because that's damn sure what I would have spent it on. I loved it when he got poetic. No, that man got eight babies up in this house. And I don't care if he only uh, if only two of him is his. It's still eight babies. And he spent the rent money on pitching pennies. Can you imagine using up your whole paycheck pitching some damn pennies? You know that stupid ass game where a bunch of sorry ass niggas stand around and pitch pennies at a wall and they see who gets closest. And whatever idiot gets closest, he wins all the damn pennies. And sometimes they don't pitch just pennies. They use dimes and even quarters. But they still calls it pitching pennies. Do you know how long you have to play that shit before you lose your whole damn paycheck? I'll tell you, all damn weekend long. That's how long. And he always up in my grill about not working. He don't want me to use my nurse's lights to go back to work, talking about it makes him look like he can't take care of his family or some shit, my mother said. Your problem, say, is that you want to be the man, Uncle O teased. Like I said, Lo, you can go fuck yourself and twice on Tuesdays, my mother said to her baby brother. And everyone on the back porch began to laugh. The night was getting louder, closer, and hotter. The porch was screened in and crickets were putting up a racket in competition with the laughter. Under the cigarette smoke, there was another scent that I called Noonie. My big brother said it came from the white flowers that grew in the backyard. My mother had filled mayonnaise jars with those white flowers and placed them around the porch. She said it was so that when these sorry-ass niggas start taking off their shoes when they start playing poker, the whole place won't stick like Fritos for a week. As the case of the beard disappeared, the laughter and the conversation grew louder. It was impossible to understand what anyone was saying because everyone was talking at once. People slammed in and out of the screen door and the noise was like gunshots. My uncle showed everyone how he could crush the tin Schlitz malt liquor can on his forehead. My mother kept turning up the music, but everyone else kept talking louder. Soon, some crooner on the record player kept telling everyone to get it on. Pat danced by herself in the middle of the room. She still hung on that flower sundress, but at least her wig was straightened out, I thought. My uncle's friends began to shout, take it off. Yeah, baby, shake it, but don't break it. Must be jelly, because jam don't shake like that. One guy said, get off the floor, Sasquatch. And everyone laughed louder than the music. The sun had gone down a long time ago, and I stared at the crowd through sleepy eyes. Moths flew around the back porch and up into the ceiling light. 
They cast strange shadows as they dived and darted, looking like tiny dark creatures in a battlefield of smoke. Just in just like in one of those old war movies that Big Willie liked so much. The air was hot when you breathed it in and when you breathed it out. Lying on my uncle's chest was like being in a warm bath. He shifted me onto a different knee and I blinked awake. A lot of people had gathered at our house. I tried to count them, but they kept moving in and out of the back screen door. Earlier, my mother had moved all four kitchen chairs onto the porch, borrowed four more from Pat, and put out the four folding chairs from the card table. She'd even put out six carnation milk crates. Every seat was taken, and more people stood along the wall, drinking, laughing, and talking. The entire neighborhood had shown up. Pat seemed particularly happy that after her husband, Gene, had gone home. Everyone called him Gene Gene the Drinking Machine but he usually left earlier than some of the heaviest drinkers. Pat finally danced her almost tall as a refrigerator self over to my Uncle Lowe. She slung her glass around so much that I was afraid she'd slosh its brown liquid right into my eyes. You need to put that baby down and come and dance with a real woman, Pat said. You know I got something for you, Lowe, something I know you've been missing in those long, long months out in lockup. With her non-drink hand, Pat lifted her flowered dress above her thigh. She was wearing white cotton panties. She swirled her middle in, in our faces. I could see tufts of black curly hair running down the inside of her tan thighs. Uncle Lowe sang along with the music as he watched Pat dancing in front of us. I was going to ask him what getting it on meant when I looked up and saw Amy coming at us like a runaway shopping cart. But in one motion, Uncle Lowe lifted, shifted me from his lap with one huge hand and shoved Amy with the other. She fell onto Pat, whose drink went flying. Amy grabbed Pat's wig on the way down, and it came off in her hand. Underneath the wig, Pat's gray braids poked out from her hairnet. The two women started rolling around like men did in those wrestling shows that my big brother liked so much. They rolled right into a table, tipping several mayonnaise jars to the floor, splashing water, glass, and noonie everywhere. Fight, 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 my uncle's friends chanted, just like the kids at Figueroa Elementary School. Uncle Lowe stood over Amy and Pat watching. He held his beard to his mouth, mouth as if it were a microphone. This is Howard Cosell, he began, mimicking the rapid speech of the boxing broadcaster. These two beer moths of the gridiron are going at it. You can feel the spit flying into the stands. Tonight, it's Godzilla versus King Kong. And who is going to be the winner? Laughter boomed through the back porch. You couldn't hear the record player at all anymore. I started crawling across the floor like my baby brother did. When these fights broke out at parties, the best place in the whole house was under the table where I sat cross-legged against the back wall. I stuck my two favorite fingers in my mouth and watched between the legs of the people standing around Amy and Pat, who wrestled and shrieked on the floor. Some of the people were barefoot, just as my mother had predicted. I hope they didn't get cut on the broken glass. A few rooted for Pat, but most cheered on Amy. And others, who couldn't make up their minds, yelled encouragement to both, which came out sounding like, Pat and it, kick her ass! I saw my mother head for the broom closet where she kept her rifle. And sure enough, she came marching back across the room to point it at Amy. Looking up into the barrel of the gun, Amy froze like a character in a Roadrunner cartoon. Say, this here hoe was pushing up on low right in front of me, she complained. Don't care, my mother said. I ain't gonna have you two bitches busting up my shit and terrorizing my babies. You can put your hands down, but you got to get the hell out of my house. Uncle O came up behind my mother and took the gun from her, grabbing the barrel with one hand and pulling her hand away from the trigger with the other. It's okay, say. We didn't mean no disrespect, Uncle O told her as he set the gun on one of the milk crates. My mother looked at Annie and Pat and said, party is over. 
Annie got off the floor and Pat picked up her wig and put it on backwards. Uncle Lil threw an arm around each of the women and started to lead them out of the back porch door. He said, I just bet I can think of a way you ladies can make it up to me for spoiling my homecoming. They all seemed to be laughing at the same joke as they went down the steps together. The rest of the party goers trailed behind them, skirting around my mother as if she were a muddy puddle of water after a drenching rain. The next morning, my mother cleaned up the back porch. She put cigarette butts and beer cans into large tin trash can. I offered to help. I liked the clanking sound of the cans made as they clashed to the bottom of the metal can. I started counting the cigarette butts as I threw them away. I was up to 39 when my mother said, turn up the radio, that's my song. It was Johnny Mathis singing, chances are. Hauling the can into the house, I almost ran into Big Willie, who was just coming through the front door. He was not a tall man, but he was like a DeSoto, as Uncle Lowe would say. My mother liked to say that he was smooth, almost blue-black, like a shiny new telephone. He liked to brag that he was black. He liked to brag that the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. Big Willie scooped me up and put and uh, scooped me up and put two fingers to my lips so I wouldn't say anything. He put me down and went out into the back porch. I turned up the music as loud as it would go. Looking out the back door, I could see Big Willie walking up in an exaggerated tiptoe motion toward my mother, as if he was going to scare her. But instead, he put his arm around her ample waist and began to dance with her to the music. Big Willie sang along with the tune in a voice that I thought was better than Mr. Johnny Mathis. He sang about how he grinned whenever he saw my mother. I closed the back door so they can have some grown-up conversation. Beautiful. <laughs> when you read, I feel, I mean, when I read it, I feel it. But when you read it aloud, and this is the second or third time I've seen you read aloud, you just see how you write so cinematically. It's so vividly, you know, your, your young Mary is like this little scout looking at everything. Um, very precocious, very smart. Um, there's this line where she says, you know, I'm still pretending to be invisible. Um, and, and that one scene you, that you read, which is the first chapter in your book, I believe, is that right? Yes. That deals with what? Gambling, domestic violence, uh, poverty, drinking, jail, incarceration, chaos, guns, kids. I mean, you basically run the gamut and you see the chaos that Mary is. And it's very clear from the story. This is not the first time this kind of party has happened, right? That's right. It was frequent. <laughs> so what do you think? Uh, how were you able to recall these memories and scene? The dialogue sparkles. I can hear your mother. I can hear all the cadence of all the different characters. Um, how do you find these stories? Like, how did you find them? Like, did you like just meditate? Did you use certain prompts? What led you and how did you get there craft wise? Um, I think it began as a, a, a project. Um, one of my mentors, Clancy Siegel, S-I-G-A-L. He was a wonderful writer. Uh, we lost him a few years ago. Clancy Siegel had me writing letters to him about my experiences growing up. And he got me thinking that the idea could be that I could write a memoir about these experiences, which he said were um, unique. And um, and so he said, you, you know, you should write about this. And then he gave us an assignment. He gave us an, a writing assignment in my uh, journalism class at USC. He said, write about the person you most admire. And that was our assignment. And I wrote about my mother. And I was mm -hmm. amazed that other people didn't write about their parents. But I wrote about my mother and uh, he said, you know, this could be a book. And for years, I just, I just sloughed it off. I didn't think about, you know, it could be a book. I was busy in setting up my career and getting my education and all that. And um, when things started to slow down in my industry, which was journalism, I started thinking, I want to write a book because I was a big reader and I like books and I wanted to write this book. And and uh, Clance was very encouraging of that. He said, write me some letters, you know, tell me some stories. And I found that a lot of these stories that had such an impact on me were from my childhood. Mm. And I think the biggest challenge was getting into the child mind. Definitely. Right. It's very hard. Yeah. 
But you do it so beautifully because you see this character of little Mary and she is the lens that we as the reader look at everything through. And that's why it's brilliant because we're looking at it through a child's eyes, but there's also the adult Mary always kind of in the background as the writer, but the older Mary gets, we just see her just, she wants to get out. Right. She's starting to realize this isn't, this is too much. Right. (laughs) I mean, your mom had 11 kids. Mother had 11, 11 kids. And then the house burns down. There's a point where your mother has to try to keep the family together. She puts a couple of the kids different places, but she keeps you and a few of your siblings. And you're kind of traveling around Los Angeles, basically homeless, right? That's right. We were we were homeless for several weeks there. Those of us who couldn't be farmed out or refused to be farmed out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we... Uh, we slept on bus benches. We slept in movie theaters. Downtown okay. LA used to have these really inexpensive movie theaters, you know, dollar for adults, 50 cents for children, triple feature, all martial arts, all the time kind of stuff. And this is the <laughs> 80s we're in? This is the 70s. 70s, yeah. That was the 70s that, that mm-hmm. we were homeless for a little while. And uh, we slept on bus benches. We slept in the what we call the bum theater because only bums stayed in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And we called it the bum theater. And uh, we slept on sidewalks. We slept in doorways. We, we, you know, to do what, you, and you know, people say, "Oh, how what deprivation!" You know, when they hear about that, or even when they read about it in my memoir. But at the time it was happening, it wasn't deprivation to me. It was like yeah. we were camping. Like you were having an adventure and I got that. Like, I love how you write about these, what some might call traumatizing moments as moments of this Mary becoming resilient and just having this, like, like there's no woe is me kind of thing. You're like, we're going to stay with mom. And there's this one scene where you're in the movie theater and they're kicking you all out. And the guy is so kind. And he says, you know, you can come back after 10 and come back in my manager's name. I mean, it's those kind of moments where you show this humanity, even in this very hard situation, but you're the lens that we get to watch it through. So because you accept it as kind of your reality and you deal, we accept it, right? There's no point where I'm mad at mom or anything. I totally always understood your mom's situation. Like she was going to keep this family together no matter what, kind of like my mom. Hmm. I mean, I see so many intersections with us. You know, I have a holiday party story that went bad with my dad and mom fighting and stuff and everyone getting kicked out. And so there, I, I just love the way you, it's very, um, it's like a cake that has many layers, your book. It's not like you can read it once and you're like, Oh, that was really interesting. What a life, but it, your stuff is way more artful than that, you know? And that's why we call it memoir and creative nonfiction, obviously, but you build these characters through dialogue, which is the hardest thing to do in my opinion. And you just do it beautifully. Um, how we've talked about this before, but your mom's voice, it seems to come easy to you. Do you hear her? Yes. My mother was such a, uh, important figure in my upbringing obviously and and even now um, she's taught me so many things mm-hmm. and um that I, I just rely on her knowing more about the world uh yeah. than I knew and even even now I mean I've outlived what she her her lifespan and um and I I I don't feel as smart as she was wow. <laughs> so she's really fabulous person oh she could she held it together with nothing with like you know string and glue man she held that family together and she was oh and eventually you get an apartment that apartment is like a slum and the basically the you know roof falls in and then you get another <laughs> apartment I just love the way that you know I with memoir, it's it's not like you're building the action, but your life is very, it, there's all these moments that you're like, oh my gosh, what else is going to happen? <laughs> Please, nothing else. Um, you're unflinchingly honest about everyone in your family, including your siblings and your the fathers of the different children that your mom had. Was that hard to kind of balance what you told, what you didn't tell, what you showed, what you didn't show, or did you just write it? And you're like, I'm just going to tell my truth. Um it was uh you know it was it's a complicated thing it's a tricky thing to what stories are you going to tell and what stories I I left out some stories Mm -hmm. um I I didn't you because as a journalist you just you you tell you put together the facts 
and let the ships fall where they may. Mm. And perhaps because that was my training as a, a newspaper journalist, I just put together the stories that were most salient to me. And if you will, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. And I think uh, that's good advice. Did anyone in your family, have they read the book? Uh, they have. Um, <laughs> they, their um, opinions, their opinions, you know, frankly, their opinions don't matter to me. <laughs> their opinions don't matter to me. We have a lot of um, addiction, a lot of mental illness, and still uh, in my family, you know, a lot of trauma yeah. that, that, that some of them have not um, processed and gone on with their lives because of these things that have happened. And so um, I, they, they don't have, uh, you know, a couple of them said, you know, that's, I'm glad you did that. And, but there are many of them, you know, they're tenable. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, a lot of people to deal with. So I was not looking to please any one of them, frankly. Uh, so I, I didn't really, I don't really take their opinions into, into consideration that, that's just honest. It's really interesting because I just had Yasmin Oromeras on who wrote a book called Andale Prieta. And she said the same thing. And, you know, I had the opposite experience where I cared too much at times instead of just finishing it. It was done for years. And I was like, I, I got to get this right. I got to get that right. In the end, I think it took so long because it needed to. And I'm really glad with the product that I put out in the end. But I think I did agonize a lot over what other people would think. And I don't think that's productive. It's productive if you're thinking about, am I going to get sued? You know, can I get an agent? Can Are they going to want to publish this? But when you're thinking of it, it almost like holds you back from being like, it's only when I let go of that that I was able to finish it and be like, okay, this is my truth. And I'm just going to tell my truth. It's hard though. It's not easy. Yeah. I know. I heard years ago, there was this, um, uh, we're going to be off on a tributary, but <laughs> um, Oprah wrote an autobiography. Mm. And Stedman um, convinced her not to ever have it released because he said it was too honest. Wow. Yeah. And um, so we'll probably, you know, she posthumously will find out what really what happened to Oprah. <laughs> but because it, people in her life told her it was too honest, it was never it's never been published. And I think that's yeah. too bad because I think that actually takes something away from the world. It does. I want to hear her story. And like your book reminds me a lot of Angela's Ashes, which is one of my favorite memoirs by Frank McCourt that won the Pulitzer Prize. He was in he was like in his 60s when he wrote it. And he got a lot of flack in Limerick, which he wrote about growing up in Limerick. And just like how you write, he wrote in scene. He had this young adult narrator that was kind of seeing his world of poverty and, you know, all this drinking and abuse. But he wrote about it in a way that made you laugh. And the, the movie's really sad, but the book itself is really funny, in my opinion. And so I love books that capture the pathos of life, right? And you have this narrator, it's kind of like, you know, the arc of the young adult narrator kind of wanting to get out and the, you know, the whole odyssey, the hero's journey. But you also have this idea of economic lack of privilege. Why is Mary and her family so in such dire straits it's just money i mean addiction too but i mean if the mom had had more support and housing and better housing and more you know i mean your mom it's not like your mom was like not taking care of y'all she did you know to a fault yes yes uh one one reviewer said i remember reading this review on amazon she said she was going to listen to um the the um audiobook version of my book but she had her 10 year old in the car so she stopped listening to it and then she listened to it on her own and um and you know because there's swearing and violence and different things yeah. are happening in there and um and she said that she she wants to go back and let her kid hear it yeah you know, um, yeah. because it is told it's not a children's book by a long shot, but it's told from the 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 kid point of view of because, um, you know, when you're a kid, the people who take care of you and the people you who love you and you know, they love you. There's not a question. You know, the person loved me. No, there's no question. You're loved. Those are the people who get your love. Wow. Yeah. Also the people who who get your love, too. 
because it's a it's a it's a it's a question of reciprocity. And, and my mother, she she loved us, like you said, to a fault sometimes. But this reviewer, she said that um, she was angry at my mother. And I was like, why is she angry at my mother? She said, because she uh, she gave too much to us. Too much. And I, and I looked at that review and I said, that's probably true in some context. Mm. Because if you give too much, then the kids don't um, flourish on their own. I mean, I'm an exception. Right, right, right. A lot right. of your siblings stayed with your mom for years yeah. and years, right? Yeah. Never got out of South Central. Yeah. Never got out. Some of them are still there. They won't leave. They won't leave. What do you think gave, you can answer this in two parts. What do you think gave you the person, the resilience to get out and get a PhD even and make it such a huge success and change everyone's lives with your teaching, your journalism and all that? And what gave the character of Mary? You know, those are two separate things. When you're writing the book, did you have to think about it separately or is it the same thing? Um, I think it's the same thing because I, I think everybody's an individual still at the end of the day. We're all individuals. And um, I've always had an independence streak, like a, mm. like a, I, I go my own way. Yeah. And I think what made the real difference is that I, I read so much as a little kid. Um, I read so many books and and um, magazines and, and newspapers and things I can get my hands on. And I knew that the world, because South Central Los Angeles can be a prison. And I knew that the world outside the prison was this wonderful thing. <laughs> and I knew from a small child, all I, I knew that all I needed to do was put my time in in this prison. And one day I could go out into that big wide world and I could, you know, I could make or break my own, if you will, fortunes. I knew yeah. that as a small child. I did hear once when Oprah was to compare myself to Oprah. But, um, I like it. Oprah, Oprah said that um, they, they said, you know, because she's the, the African-American one who has, uh, well, the most money. And they asked her, you know, you're on the Fortune 500 list. And all, you know, you're growing up in, well, where was it? Tennessee or whatever without shoes. And um, and she said, they said, did you know that you'd have this wealth and fame? And she said, I was this very small child and I knew. Wow. Yeah. So that's another reason yeah. why I would love to read her book. She said, I was a very small child and I, I just knew that this was, there was something more. I knew from being a very small child in these in these dire circumstances. And so I relate to that too, where um, I knew as a very small child, you know, the little kid hiding under the table while the adults are fighting at the party. I was like, yeah, it's not like this everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I used to always say that. It's throughout my book where Jenny is saying, is everyone's life like this? Is everyone's life, does it have to be like this where mom and dad are fighting and you end up at the park at night? Does it have to be like this? Does this chaos, does it have to be this way? And I just love that Mary gets out. She gets out. And the story I want to read next, if you ever write another memoir, is about that education journey. Like, what was that like for you coming from where you came from and seeing all the poverty and all the harshness and rawness of the life in South Central? And then I went to law school at USC, but it's nothing like the undergrad. The law school is actually very diverse and it's about one third low income or first gen students and people of color. But the undergrad is so privileged. Like, what was that like? Um, you know, um, people have asked me that because it's kind of an extreme. I've been to the extremes yeah. where you actually you literally have nothing to eat, you know. And uh, and my mother was such a you know so moral. You can't steal it either. You have not, you, you can't you can't pull a you know yeah. Jean Valjean or something. <laughs> yeah, she's a God fearing um, Christian woman. She's not going to go steal. She might go try steal. to find potatoes somewhere a bar. Right. She's not going to steal. She's not going to steal it. So you you're just hungry when there's no food. You're just hungry. And so the other extreme where people are we're going to dinner and people are spending five six hundred dollars. Or did that just put it on dad's gold cart, you know? So that's the other extreme of that. And um, what I've discovered, having been in both those situations, mm. is that um, deprivation and having too much—it's almost the same thing. Yeah, it's almost it does this. It meets 
the deprivation wow. and having too much actually meets. And when when you have too much, you also are not you, you you're you're not focused. It's never on, enough either. Yeah, it is never enough. You're not focused on, frankly, being a better person. Yeah. Okay. Like being a better person, being more decent to people, being kind. Mm -hmm. You're not focused on that because you have so much. Just you're drowning in stuff. And then when you're deprived, you're not focused on being a better person. Yeah. You're not focused on being kind. Except for my mother, maybe. Uh, so you're uh, in the what do you what would you call that? You're just struggling to survive, right? Or yes, you're struggling yeah. to survive. And we understand that, but we don't understand the the people who have so much, like the people I ran into at USC. The people who have so much, they are also not necessarily happy. Uh, and that's yeah. what I secession, what right? The yeah. money will not make you happy. Money yeah. can be a curse. Money yeah. can make you unhappy. Yeah. The thing that can make you happy is time and space and the ability to do what you love. I, I don't believe in money for that reason, really. I think it's a signifier and an illusion because I think you're right. There is, I've never thought about the deprivation part because I never went hungry. But um, I had a lot of deprivation in other ways, I think, um, that I've tried to fill up in different ways with other things. But I think you're right. The deprivation and the having too much or the kind of being able to just be a glutton at certain things, that, that's almost the same thing in some ways. Yeah. yeah it's the mirror image. So I, I didn't feel, I was told that I was going to be, um, what do they call it when you, culture shock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you go to USC, you're going to come go for Compton, you're going to go to USC. This is how you deal with the culture shock. I had no culture shock. Yeah. Also, too, because I had read widely. Yeah. And I, I had an additional education beyond my 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 uh, public education, and so um, I wasn't behind in any way. Yeah. <laughs> you you know, escaped was, into books. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, you know. Anyway, it was not it was not a culture shock, and frankly, I felt sorry for a lot of those rich people. Yeah. Because they were grabbing onto stuff. I, I had a student, uh, uh, somebody who didn't, wasn't, wasn't sure what their mother's last name was because she was married so many times. Wow. And, and I thought, wow, <laughs> I remember all the last names of all my stepfathers, <laughs> Yeah, but they were sent away whenever the mother was going to marry some new mm -hmm. dude with money. And so, and I felt so sad for him. He was just so, he was just a sad little guy. He was a man basically, right? No matter yes. how much money you have. Yes. Yeah. And he had all this stuff and cars and things. And, but um, so anyway, I, it was not a culture shock as everyone thinks it was or suspect it might've been. Yeah. It was, I was just in a new situation, which was very similar to the old situation, except there's more stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lots of books and lots more stuff. But, you know, your mom clearly loved you. My mom and dad clearly loved me. And I think that as long as you have that love, you could go a lot with that. You know, the other stuff doesn't matter as much, you know. Um, L.A. is such a central figure in this book. Was that purposeful where L.A. almost became a character? And it's a very blue collar, 1970s, 1980s, raw L.A., almost like a New York City in a way. Um, you see the dusty park bench, you see the bus stop, you see the old movie theater where, like you said, the bums would hang out and your mom had to put you. Like, was that purposeful? Because I really love that part of it because people write about L.A., but it's usually a very idealized L.A., typically. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about that part of L.A. that you don't see in the movies. And um, yeah. and I, it's purposeful, purposeful that it's called a, um, a memoir of Mama in South Central Los Angeles. Everyone calls it South L.A. today, but it's actually South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. When they, For some reason, they thought it was a big deal when they dropped the central out of it. But, but it was <laughs> always known as that. I mean, I lived in South Central in law school at USC. I lived on uh, Figueroa and Adams. And it, that's South Central. You yes, can put as is. many big stadiums as you want, but it's South Central. Yeah, that is indeed South Central. And so I wanted to show that part of I wanted to show that part of L.A. You, you don't see you don't except for, you know, it may be in Boys in the Hood and some of those mm -hmm. other boy movies straight out of content. You don't really see South Central Los Angeles. Right. In, in Boys the in the Hood did a good job of it. And your book kind of mirrors mm -hmm. that in some ways. Yeah. Which is beautiful because you're writing mm -hmm. from a feminine perspective, you know. That's why I called it Girls in the Hood, actually, uh -huh. because of 
boys in the hood. I wanted people to connect yeah. to the fact that this is, we saw all the stuff that's sadly happening to the boys in the hood. Right. Where are the women and the girls? That was my question. That was the essential question I wanted to answer. Yeah. Where are the women and the girls in all of this? Because um, of the single parent households in South Los Angeles, a good 70, 80 percent are headed by women. Yeah. You know, and so who are these people that are kind of holding it up, holding it together? And that's the women and the girls. And that part, I wanted to show up L.A. And I also wanted to show that part where the women actually get we get to tell part of our story because it's only this much a part of our story. Well, you do it beautifully. Um, You know, I'm going to flash forward a little bit in the book. Your mom passes away. And then again, Mary has to go home right? And deal with all the drama. Were you a uh, journaling at that time? Or did you just remember that stuff so vividly? Because it was so much stress, because I believe you had just started one of your first newspaper jobs. And you get the call. Yeah, I was um, actually in Las Vegas at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was my third job. Newspaper okay. Job. And um, I was at the Las Vegas Sun. And um, my, my siblings, the ones who were into their addiction, uh, they didn't want me to know my mother had died. Yeah. You know, and, but one of them kind of broke away from the pack and he called me and told me, and, um, and I just knew I had to, I had to go back and I had to organize things to, to, because they were very short on organizational skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Reading the chapter, I can tell. Yeah. You had to do everything. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was a, ter- it was probably, one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life. Really. I felt it. I felt because the funeral is stressful enough. And I planned my dad's with my sisters and there was some drama, but nothing like that. All the family dynamics, this coming home to root. You're trying to honor your mother, who is Jehovah, I believe, who you wanted to give a service for. And um, she was a Jehovah's, she was one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And yes. I wanted to have her make sure that yeah. she got her kingdom hall service. Yeah. And that was so beautiful because Mary just cares so much as a character about this, that she's willing to put up with all the BS, right? And leave her comfortable life (laughs) where, I mean, it's almost like you created a new life for yourself in Las Vegas, where it's quiet, focused on work. You can delve into your job and your, you know, books and everything that you had created for yourself in your small little haven. And then you have to go back to chaos. Which is funny because you're going from Las Vegas, which is like Sin City, back to L.A. Which, But I mean, yeah, I mean, I just I love that part of it. I'm really glad you included that chapter because I could have seen how you could have stopped short of that. But I think it's a really important thing to talk about. You know, you letting your mom go in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, again, it was it was a terrible time in my life. And um, I had to go back and because my mother also wanted she she loved us all, not just me, and mm. and and she wanted um, opportunities for her other kids, especially the minor children who who were still well minors when she died. Yeah. And um, I took two of the three minors with me mm. to Las Vegas, and one of my sisters um, to to live with me in, in Las Vegas because my mother would have wanted it that way. That's, That's why. So kind. That's why. I'm tearing up. That makes me want to cry that you did that because it couldn't have been easy, right? Oh, it was very difficult. I, I'd, uh, I'd worked very hard not to be a mother, and, <laughs> but so, but now I kind of had to step into that role, yeah, uh, because my mother was gone. But I made a deal with my sister. I said, "You guys gonna live with me, and I'm gonna my my sister who had been, um, uh, well, she was criminal." at the time. And so um, I said, you're going to live with me. No crimes while you're living with me. And um, she agreed that within a year, she was going to take custody of the kids. Mm. And then, and frankly, I could get on with my life, you know, but uh, I put my life on hold for that year that they lived with me in Las Vegas. And then, um, then after I got them settled, I went to grad school. Wow. And she did well, right? She got her shit together. She did indeed. I was, wow. I, was, I was very happy about that. She, well, she, yeah, she had no criminal people to hang out with in yeah. Las Vegas, and I insisted that she get a job. <laughs> you know, I was like, "You got, you know, you're an adult. You have to work for a living, right? You're not gonna 
steal stuff or sell drugs or whatever it is you were doing out in the streets. So um, a friend of mine said, you know what? We need a hostess at the Denny's. And, and I said, uh, I got the girl for you. That's <laughs> awesome. And yeah, I, I found that really inspiring because in some ways you're kind of helping her because like you said, your mom would have wanted you to. And she did change her life. Um, what advice? I'm going to change topics because there's a lot of writers that watch this and we have about 10 more minutes and I want to make sure that you answer this. What advice do you have for writers that are watching this that are struggling to tell their own story, especially when it involves trauma or sadness or hard stories? You know, I would say, um, you know, it's like, see the ridiculousness of the situation. You know, see the humor and the ridiculousness of the situation, and then it won't be so frightening. You know, it won't be so frightening to like put it down because there's some very traumatic things that happen in Girls in the Hood uh, to me, to my siblings, to my mother, yeah. some very traumatic things. But you can always see how ridiculous, you know, I mean, we're living in a we're living in an apartment in South L.A. and the toilet falls from the bathroom onto the to- a toilet in our apartment. I mean, could have killed someone. Could've yeah. could've killed, but you know what? It didn't. So, uh, it well, your down. first house burning down because uh, there was gasoline in the two liters of <laughs> Rite Aid. And I was just like, how did this happen? <laughs> I mean, ridiculousness because my mother was making Maltov cocktails to throw at the neighbors. That's how that happened. <laughs> how ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is that? So, and she had them stored on the back porch. <laughs> and then the insurance didn't cover it because I think they ruled it negligent, negligent. to have live gasoline multiple cocktails. I think your brother, did your brother somehow light them on fire by an accident? You know, yeah. We, I never, I, mm-hmm. to this day, you know, I'm in my fifties now. And to this day, I do not know exactly what transpired because <laughs> it was just my cousin, Philip and Bobby, my brother at home. And all I know is the aftermath was that we had no place to live. And they told two different stories and they told different mm-hmm. stories through the years. We don't know. All we know is the house burned down. That's what we know. So- I love fire stories. So almost every single one of my favorite authors, you, Alison Hedgecoat, a couple other authors I know, have these fire starter stories. I have a fire story. And my, we, my sister almost burned our living room down. We could have burned the house down if, you know, we hadn't grabbed the hose or whatever. But I mean, I just love this idea. Like you said, you didn't really know what happened, but you still wrote about it. And you acknowledge freely in the book. I don't know what really happened, but the house is gone. (laughs) All all I know is I I came home from school and it was just a a stucco shell. So sad. You know, burned out furniture in the front. Again, this is all this is all traumatic. But yeah, ridiculous. So you lost to, everything in one day. Yeah. yeah, I would tell to writers, you know, lean into the how ridiculous some of these tragic things are. Lean, just lean into that. Um, and I and I would say tell your tell your truth and don't don't get in your head about oh this is going to be offensive to that person. That person really doesn't want me to tell that story. You know, don't get into your head. Don't don't muffle yourself. Don't mu- mm. muzzle, muffle, muzzle. Don't Both. muzzle yourself. Muffle and muzzle, yeah. Muzzle and muffle. <laughs> yeah. Don't muzzle, muffle. Don't <laughs> we just made don't mu- muzzle. <laughs> muffle. But anyway, don't don't do that to yourself. Exactly. Um, you just just put it all down and don't d- tell yourself you're not even writing a book. Say, you know, psych yourself out. Say, I'm going to write a short story about, and and, and tell yourself that it's going to be couple of thousand words. And um, when, when I was writing my, my latest novel, uh, Grandma's Hands, um, I, I said, you know what, I'm going to write a short story about three grandmothers who are raising their grandchildren. That happens a lot in South Central LA, by the way, or South LA now. And so I'm going to write a story about that, a short story. And next thing you know, it's like thousands of words. Wow. Because it's so much more expansive than what I told myself it was going to be. It's actually a novel. It's not, it's not a short story. So you can psych yourself out and say, you know what, I'm going to write a short story. I'm going to, as a matter of fact, I'm going to enter it into a short story writing contest. And you, so you're doing your best work. And the next thing you know, you're going to be like, you know what, this is much more than a short story. So yes, 
And so yeah. that's what's next on the horizon for you. Is that your project you've been working on for a long time? Yeah, I, I was working on it before the pandemic, you know, like everybody else, the pandemic affected my family. And so um, uh, I was not working on it during the pandemic. Um, I was thinking, you know, what, what are we doing with our dogs if we both die here? I was, you know, I was worried about yeah. that. And so, uh, so I wasn't really working on it. But um, after the pandemic, we're kind of in the aftermath of the pandemic right now. I really started in earnest on writing this um, novel called Grandma's Hands. And it's about three grandmothers, like I said, raising their grandchildren. And um, one of them's based on a friend of mine. One of them's based on my mother, uh, because she also partly raised uh, yeah. my sister's kids. She was, a, she was a grandmother in that context. And so, um, I'm so excited about it. I'm, I'm almost done with the draft of it and the first draft of it, you know, it, it may go through many drafts. You know how that is in writing. It may go through many drafts, but I'm so happy that oh. it's it's coming to a conclusion. Now I can think about other things that I want to write. Do you do, are you doing like different chapters with different characters or, you, or do are they all together kind of thing that they're um, interacting? Each, each character gets her own chapter. Oh, I love stories like that. Each character like, gets her own oh. chapter. The, the, to me, that's the most effective way to write like these different characters that are, you know, there's, they have these intersections and stuff. So I'm so excited to read that. Wow. Okay. So how can people find you, your work, any readings you're going to do? Um, how can people find you? Um, I, I do have a webpage and it's um, www.maryhill-wagner, W-A-G-N-E-R, author. Dot com. Yes. And, and they can uh, buy your books on. And they can and they can buy my books um, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's available on Regal House, R-E-G-A-L. Regal House is my publisher. You can get it also on their website. And um, if you if you Google me, all these things will just I mean, if you Google Mary Hill Wagner and again, it's Wagner, but you, you see Wagner <laughs> and you'll see Wagner. You'll say, well, I thought you said Wagner. But um, Mary Hill Wagner, and um, it'll show you all the places you can you can get my book, and and I'm and I try to let everyone know where readings are going to be held and and so forth, and um, it's just been an exciting journey. Yeah, I love your work. Um, I think that um, one of the things that really, to me, it's just that brutal honesty and the ability to write scene by scene memoir. It's not an easy thing to do, write in child voice. It's not easy. And you just make it look so easy. And when you read aloud, it's magic. It's so <laughs> magic. So if everyone listened to the first part of chapter one of her book that she read live here, that is just the beginning. It gets better and better and better. <laughs> and then it culminates. And it's just beautiful. It's really um, masterful in the way you write memoir. I mean, your journalism skills are have clearly like brought you to another level. So I love your book. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to tell everyone, um, I'm going to, we're going to say goodbye in a minute, but uh, next episode is November 30th. Ruthie Marlene, um, that's the, it's spelled Marlene, um, is the Latina author of the novel Agave Blues. She has other novels. She's one of my favorite people. She lives in the desert. She's going to be on, she's going to be talking about magical realism, about how you write a novel about tequila. And um, you're going to love it. So come on November 30th, 7 p.m. Pacific, always Pacific time, 7 p.m. on a Wednesday, November 30th. So any final words, Dr. Mary Hill Wagner? Um, you know, you could still re review my book if you if you read it already and you liked it. You can review it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon and, and Goodreads. I really appreciate it. If you would, uh, that's how writers uh, become known to um uh, to readers so if you review it on um either of those i would really appreciate it thank you everyone and i'll put all her links on my life of gem page thank you um you're one of my favorite people it's such a blessing to know you and to have met you and you're right down the street so i hope we can have coffee soon absolutely person. take okay. care take bye -bye. care have a good night bye bye